there's a limited of time, amount of time to repent, the clock runs out. Now, the other thing I want to tell you about is uh, Israel is, uh, one of two kings is in the age of the empire, as I call it. Um, here's uh, the ancient Near East, call this uh, invincible Israel. God chose Israel to bless the whole world, right? And the way they're going to do that is introduce God to the whole world. And they were ideally situated on the map here, of the ancient Near East, to do it. Um, here is Israel under King David. That's basically what it looked like. There's Jerusalem, where the temple is, where people can go to meet the living God. Come and meet the God of Israel, know him and know salvation. Ideally located to do that. Um, there's some other nations there that are noteworthy. This is uh, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Monty Python question, what is the capital of Assyria? It's Nineveh. Sorry to ruin that scene from the Holy Grail for you. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, if not, don't worry. Lots of blank stares. Uh, Babylon, another big important empire there. Uh, would be big important empire. And of course Egypt down here in the, uh, in the corner. Um, one more detail, though. This is the Arabian Desert. Now, what does that do to the map? What it does to the map is that Israel is basically a corridor to Egypt. <laughs> if you want to conquer the ancient Near East, you have to conquer Israel to do it. It also means if you're going to be a blessing to the world the other way around, Israel is in the best location you can possibly be in because they can get to Egypt, they can get to Babylon, they can get to Nineveh, they can get to the Mediterranean. They can bless the world really easily if they'll just follow God and be the invincible blessing that he wants them to be. So the location's good for two things. Obeying God and being a blessing to the world, disobeying God, and being conquered by whichever superpowers in power at the time. You look at that there and you go, well, what's Israel without God? Israel is a tiny, puny nation playing against the big boys. Because all of them are going to want to conquer Israel when they've got the power to do it and when they want to have their turn at making... Uh, their big empire. So if you zoom in on Israel, this, is, this just gives you a taste of it. Here is Israel. This here is Megiddo. We heard of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo is one of the most fought over places in the history of the world. Um, all the kings of Israel fought there just about. The Philistines there, Egyptian pharaohs, kings of Assyria, Babylon and Persia, Greeks, Romans, uh, Islamic armies, Crusader armies, Napoleon, the Turks, the British, the Ottomans, the Israelis, everybody has fought there. It's one of the most contested pieces of land in the world because... Israel is a corridor that everybody wants to travel through, everybody wants to own. The name for Megiddo in Greek is Armageddon. That's where it comes from. That's how many people have fought there. It's Armageddon. And so one way or another, Israel's are all going to gather to Israel. They're either going to gather to Israel to meet their God because Israel's following him, or they're going to gather there to destroy them and take it over. Kind of get the picture, the big picture, and it, it changes Israel's place in the world for you, doesn't it, in, in this period. Now, um, because of uh, King Solomon's idolatry, Israel's split in two uh, pretty quickly and shrinks a great deal, and it does not look very invincible. Uh, Solomon's uh, son engages in idolatry, level three, so the bottom, like the nations before him, largely, and straight away, what happens? King of Egypt comes up, sacks the temple, well, doesn't sack the temple, nicks stuff from the temple, uh, and from Rehoboam's palace. So, invincible blessing. No, not following God, God not protecting them, just a tiny little nation scrounging, basically. Now, to get a flow of uh, 1 and 2 Kings, we're just going to go through some of the stuff we've seen before. Um, this is where, uh, it's just a timeline, you can see there on the side. Um, this is King Solomon, and he's, uh, when the kingdom splits into north and south. And 1 and 2 Kings is largely the stories of these kings of Israel and of Judah in the south. And so uh, you'll see the flags there. That flag is the flag of Israel. This flag, uh, 
Over there is the flag of Jeroboam of, of the north. You'll see the different colours in the backgrounds from the chart we saw before about levels of idolatry that they engaged in. Um, Rehoboam uh, did evil. He followed the idols. Jeroboam as well, the first level of idolatry. Asa was a, different, a, a better guy. Um, and the colours of the uniforms on the right are going to show dynasties. So Jeroboam's dynasty in red. You'll see the story if you, you kind of get the colour coding of the thing. Um, so these guys, Rehoboam and uh, Abijam, engaged in idolatry, didn't follow God. They set up Asherah poles, temple prostitutes, all sorts of horrible stuff we read about. Um, then Asa comes along and he expels it all. And we hear, he did what was right, like David. But he didn't throw the high places out. He compromised. But he was a pretty good guy. He did very gutsy things following God. Incidentally, as I read 1 and 2 Kings, I'm encouraged by the example of guys like Asa because I read it and I go, I could have done that and I think I could have done better than that guy and he received God's condemnation, uh, God's commendation. God was pleased with that guy. It's really encouraging to me. He did what was right like David. He was far from perfect, but he did what was right. Jeroboam, of course, as we heard, set up statues, fought against Abijam. There's idolatry in the north. Um, God brings judgment against that um, line because of their idolatry. Basha comes along, he's just as bad, engages in the same idolatry. Elah comes along, he's just as bad, there's chaos. And eventually, Omri comes along, and he starts one of the worst dynasties Israel ever seen because now we are not in level one idolatry. Now we are in Baal worship territory. Now we were replacing worship of the true living God with an idol, a fake God, Baal and all the terrible actions and lifestyle that go along with that. Now, one of the most lengthy things in 1 and 2 Kings that we hear about is the ministry of these guys, Elijah and Elisha. Uh, You have to think of them as one prophet, basically. They have one job, and it's kind of like Elijah finishes and says, tag, you're it, to Elisha, and it continues for more than one lifetime. It's a really long ministry. Now, uh, what's what's the job that they share and play tag and and finish while they're alive? It's to wipe out Baal worship in Israel and offer Israel a clean slate so they can follow God. Get rid of Baal worship, follow follow God. And so when Israel refuses, their role changes to bringing an era of judgment on Israel for their sin and wiping out Baal worship and offering Israel a clean slate in the meantime. So we heard uh, a bunch of weeks ago, um, Elijah uh, confronted Israel in the idolatry. They refused to repent even though there were miracles and all sorts of stuff. And God in response says, I want you to go and anoint two guys, and they're going to bring out my will. And this is going to happen for the whole life of Elisha as well. Uh, Jehu, anoint him to be king of Israel, the northern kingdom there. And I want you to anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, or Syria, um, not an Israelite place. I want you to appoint these guys kings, and they are going to do my will. Here's the jobs they're going to do. Jehu is going to single-handedly wipe Baal worship out from the face of Israel. And Hazael is going to bring judgment on Israel for refusing to repent of Baal worship. And now from this point on, you're just waiting. When, when is this going to happen? Like Ahab gets on with it. He's just absolutely terrible. Jezebel, his wife, is worse. And they get on with doing all sorts of terrible things. And you're waiting for God to come and take action and wipe out this terrible plague that's come into Israel. Now, sorry, one sec. Jehoshaphat over here, another good king, very foolishly, becomes friends with Ahab. His son marries the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and suddenly uh, we have Baal worship in uh, Judah as well. Uh, Now you're really waiting for Jehu to come along and wipe out Baal, uh, because we're just desperate at this point. Baal worship has taken over. They're no longer the knights of the nations. Now friends, you've just got to notice... 
sin is really contagious. Idolatry is really contagious. It, it, it tends to spread. It tends to go out and go to new people and, and take over. And so tolerating it, like Israel did, like Judah did, is the worst thing anybody can possibly do. Now, thankfully, Hazael and Jehu are finally anointed uh, through uh, Elisha. Jehu's anointed, and 2 Kings 9 to 10, he basically wipes out Baal worship very quickly. It's pretty graphic. He kills both kings because they're both Baal worshippers. He kills Jezebel, and he kills all the remaining prophets of Baal. And Israel has a chance for a fresh start under God, under king. If we get to him. Jehu. Sorry. That's, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> Under King Jehu. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 10 while I get the uh, slide back in the right place. And you hear about Jehu, some really important things are promised about him that kind of set the, uh, the, the, the itinerary for quite a bit of what happens afterwards. Uh, Jehu uh, in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 28. So let's have a look what happens uh, there. What it says is, after Jehu's done all his stuff, it says, Jehu who destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. So we've gone from idolatry level two, we've just gone down to level one. They are not honouring God. They've just gone back to worshipping those cows at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in accomplishing what's right in my eyes and done the house of Ahab all I had mine to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. He has a long chance here. He has a long window to bring true worship to Israel. Four generations. There's going to be five kings of Jehu's line who have the chance to fix things. Guaranteed. But, next verse, but Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from their sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. Lots of opportunity to repent. But first of all, Hazael, king of Aram, uh, comes along and brings judgment. Have a look at verse 32, the other guy that was anointed through uh, Elisha. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazael overpowered the Israelites throughout their territories to the Jordan in all the Gilead. I think I've got a map there of that. So basically, he just conquered all of that and made it Aram, and Israel is half the size. But watch Jehu, because he's got four generations to fix it, guaranteed from God. You come across to Judah and you hear about Joash, another David-like king, except for his compromise in the high places, the theme. And another theme comes along as well as we hear about these kings that compromise in the high places. And here it is. They keep on having to give away the treasures of Israel from the temple in order to survive. He bought out Hazael of Aram from invading Jerusalem by giving him treasures from the temple. It happens over and over again. Back to Jehu's side. Jehoahaz. Jehu, number one of four. Uh, Hazael completely dominates Israel through uh, this period. He's just desperate. But did Jehoahaz take opportunity to repent? No, he didn't. We come down to the next one, Jehoahash. Jehoahash did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just like Jeroboam. He didn't repent. He didn't take the opportunity. But then we hear that Elisha dies. This is actually kind of good news. (laughs) Because when Elisha dies, the curse against Israel is lifted. Um, And uh, turn to chapter 13. And uh, their oppression under the king of Aram ends. So Jehu's line has an even better opportunity. Turn to verse, uh, th- chapter 13, verse uh, 20. It just says, Elisha was died and was buried. It's a prophet of God and a really good one, so you don't want to cheer at that. 
but Israel, I think, was when they worked out the significance of it. Have a look at verse uh, 24. Hazael, king of Aram, then died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoahash, son of Jehoaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he'd taken from battle from his father Jehoahaz. All that bit was conquered before. It's alleviated. They take it back, and they have a better chance to follow God. Also, uh, over in, in Judah, Amaziah, the standard king like with comp- King David with compromised sort of king. Uh, he reigns, he's able to retake territory as well. However, he decides to be a bit big for his boots. He attacks Jehoahash, loses, and Jehoahash again sacks the temple, takes the treasures, and we get used to that kind of thing. Jeroboam II, Jehu's third descendant in the promised line of guaranteed rulers. Will he repent? What do you think, folks? Well, the colour tells you it all, unfortunately. I just don't understand so many opportunities and so little repentance in Israel. It's probably because he saw so much prosperity. Uh, the curse of Hazael was lifted. Jeroboam actually saw the, the borders of Israel increase. He doesn't need God. And so he doesn't turn to God. He doesn't repent. Now, let's just pause a sec. I know the pace is like, wow, this is, this is quick. This is um, a lot of stuff. Let's just pause for a sec. Think about the rules we've seen so far. A lot of Judah's rulers we've heard is they did what was right, but they compromised. They did what was right, but they compromised. And God's pleased with them. He commends them. However, we keep seeing disaster follow them because they compromise on righteousness over and over again. The temple keeps getting looted because of them. Uh, This guy, the next one, there he is, Azariah Uzziah, another name for him. Uh, the only reason he doesn't seem to compromise is he's too sick to govern properly. And you're kind of thankful for that because you, you just think it will be the same as the others. But there's one more chance in Israel to repent. And you're going, okay, are they going to continue in the sins of Jeroboam and worshiping the cows or are they going to repent and find the true and living God? Just before we get to that, I just want to think application for a sec, right? Um, as I've told people about Jesus or tried to, um, I, I find it difficult quite often um i hear some people sometimes playing kind of conundrums trick questions to to try and show that christianity doesn't make sense um here's here's a couple of them that i think this whole period speaks to um if i'm bad and i repent god always forgives me right i can just trust in jesus and live however i want and then i'll 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 just ask for forgiveness and i I can sin and live how i want and he has to let me into heaven because i keep repenting i keep I, i i keep asking for forgiveness and, and you look for a clear answer to that. It's quite hard on the spot to answer that kind of question. Here's my answer. Do you really think you can outsmart God? Do you really think you can treat the living God like a fool and come off better in that interaction? God is no fool and he will not be treated like one. That's what we hear in, the, in, in Israel's history. You've got a time to repent, Israel. You best take it. Because God is no fool and he will not be treated like one. Or the other one, I plan on turning to Jesus on my deathbed so I can live however I want now and still get to heaven at the end. And again, the answer is just, really? <laughs> God won't be mocked. You've had a chance to turn to Jesus every time you've known his name and he's given you opportunity today to turn to him and find eternal life and repent and, and find life and find his ways. And if you don't repent today, what well, makes you think he'll give you an op- another opportunity in the future? It's just that idea. God won't be treated like a fool when he gives people an opportunity to repent. Zechariah, the last king of Jehu's line, doesn't last very long. 
He's murdered by Shalom. He doesn't repent. He's murdered by Shalom, who was promptly murdered by Menahem. And there's another couple of dynasties there. Come to chapter 15 of 2 Kings. Uh, on page 379. Chapter 15, verse 12. It says, So the word of the Lord spoken to Jehu was fulfilled. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. It just shows God's word always comes fulfilled. Uh, best listened when he promises something, right? Whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. The last chance has failed, and Israel doesn't have that kind of chance again because now we hear about the Assyrians coming. Now, the Assyrians are the first superpower of the whole era, basically. There's this guy called Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria, also called Pul, because I think they wanted a shorter name for him. Um, He was a military empire-building genius. Uh, He was a very scary man. He instituted the world's first professional standing army, and he developed systems that made making a big empire possible, basically. And he became ruler of Assyria, Uh, and emerged as the most powerful empire the ancient Near East had ever seen. So this is Nineveh in the north there, and Tiglath-Pileus is coming out of there. So he conquers stuff, and naturally enough, because you've got to conquer Israel to conquer the Middle East, the the ancient Near East, uh, he heads towards Jerusalem and towards Israel. Come down to chapter 15, verse 19. This terrifying man, Tiglath-Pileus, or Pul, it's going to call him in this bit. Um, Chapter, verse 19 says, Then Pul, king of Assyria, invaded the land, men and hem, the king at the time, gave him thousand talents of silver to gain his support and strengthen his own hold over the kingdom. Just puny little kingdom playing political games because they don't know God and they don't know God's protection. They continue in uh, Jeroboam's idolatry. Uh, there's a couple more kings come along. Another murder takes place. Pekahiah uh, gives way to Pekah, his son. Uh, and then verse 27 of chapter 15. Israel refuses to repent still. In the, 50th sec- uh, the 52nd year of Azariah, king of uh, Judah, Pekah, son of Rimaliah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. He did evil. In the eyes of the Lord, it's become so familiar. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. It's that higher level of idolatry, which is bad enough. You don't have to get worse than that to displease God. Israel still unrepented. Tiglath-Pileser comes back and he just conquers the place. And now you can see Israel basically consists of the capital, the city of Samaria, and a little bit of land around it. Then King Hoshea comes to the throne and he will be the last king of Israel. Now, they're doomed sure, basically, at this point. Then you hear about Ahaz, next chapter. Ahaz, who is a far worse king than Hoshea. In fact, he's the worst king so far, except Ahab, maybe. He's an absolutely terrible king. Yeah, he is the worst so far. He engages in level three idolatry. He's like the nations that were before Israel. Completely gives himself over to Tiglath-Pileser as his subject says, your God, your king, I'll follow you. I'll worship you just... Look after us. And he institutes a Syrian-style religion in Judah just to get protection, basically. And so whilst Israel's in its last days, you notice that Judah's being more unfaithful than Israel's ever been. In 722 BC, if you can remember dates in the Bible, uh, Tiglath-Pileser's son, Shalmaneser V, invaded and deported all of Israel. God's patience had worn out after generations generations of unfaithfulness, unrepentance. The nor- northern ten tribes of Israel, they disappeared into history deported to Nineveh and around Nineveh and then gone. 
Judah now saw the best king they'd ever seen since David, King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah down here is the first white background we've seen for a while. He just followed like David did. <laughs> he was a good guy. Turn to chapter 18, and like King Hezekiah deserves a sermon on his own, but a few of these guys do actually. Uh, but this man is brilliant. Chapter 18, verse 5, follow along. It's on page 383, and just listen to this guy and the commendation he receives from God. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands of the Lord he had given to Moses, and the Lord was with him. The Lord is going to need to be with him, because the king of Assyria invaded Judah and then headed towards Jerusalem. Now, by Hezekiah's side, there's this prophet here called Isaiah. He wrote one of the big books of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's a very long book. Uh, and he is with Hezekiah, uh, promising him from God that Jer- Jerusalem would not fall. And so Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He did. He trusted in God. He's going to save us. He wasn't flawless, if you read it. Read it again. And they're not flawless guys. But he kept repenting. He kept trusting in God. You'll save us. The year was 701 B.C., um, some historians think this event, the siege of Jerusalem in 701, is the most significant military event in the history of the world. Um, the reason is because Assyria didn't conquer Jerusalem. And if they'd succeeded, then there would be no Jews, no Judah, no Jesus, no Christianity, and for that matter, no Islam. Uh, I can tell you why another time. Basically, this would change history if the Assyrians conquered Jerusalem. Um, they, it's really strange they failed. They just conquered Lachish, which is the most fortified city in all of Judah. And they made monuments to boast about it. This is in the British Museum. These are the, once, once um, the king got back to Nineveh, he had these things commissioned, which is it's all just saying, look, we beat the Israelites at Lachish. It was really hard, but we're glorious and we beat them. Like, here's the inscription in Akkadian. Sennacherib, mighty king, uh, king over the country of Assyria, sitting on his throne of judgment before the city of Lachish. I give permission for its slaughter. Delightful man. But you look at that and you go, how did they not conquer Jerusalem? They could conquer anything, that army. And so some historians have just gone, you know what? I think they got cholera. <laughs> and they, that, that, that's what caused them to you know, not be able to, to conquer the place. I mean, Sennacher, uh, the, the king doesn't talk about it. This thing here, this, this big prism, we're not going to look at it in any detail. Um, that is Sennacherib's account of what happened. He said, well, I locked up Hezekiah like a bird of a cage. I looked, lo- took lots of stuff and I left. And you're going, why did you leave? What stops you from conquering Jerusalem? Here's what the Bible says happened. Have a look at chapter 19. When Isaiah the prophet promises to his faithful Hezekiah, God will protect Israel. God will protect Israel. Uh, 386, chapter 19, verse 35. Isaiah's just done a long prophecy promising the protection of, of Jerusalem. And you read, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there and made big murals about Lachish because there wasn't much good to talk about at Jerusalem. This is why Israel was invincible if they followed God like Hezekiah. So Judah was saved, and Assyria began to decline. But Isaiah, before he left, 
foretold another great empire was coming along, Babylon, and this one would be the end of Judah. Now, after Hezekiah, it's, it's hard to believe what his son was like. Manasseh, he ruled longer than any other king Israel or Judah had ever seen. It was 55 years. Uh, he was the worst king in the history of north or south. Um, you just have to read it to believe it. It's in chapter 21. Read it sometime. It's breathtakingly awful. But here's my meter of idolatry. And basically, he sets a new standard. He is worse than the Canaanites, than the Amorites, worse than any before him. Manasseh, breathtakingly evil man. The idolatry meter breaks. And so you come to chapter 21, verse 12. And God, who only gives so much time to repent, saying, follow me, repent, follow my ways, says, time's up for Judah. Verse 12, therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And so on. He'll wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish wiping it and turning it upside down. Judah's end is now certain. But then you hear about another king that comes along after Amon dies, King Josiah. King Josiah we heard about in our Bible reading, and he is as breathtakingly for God as Manasseh was against him. Uh, if, he's not, if Hezekiah is not the best king, Josiah is. In fact, Josiah pleased God more than anyone else we read. He's the best king Judah ever had. He completely wiped out the idolatry of Israel, tore down everything Manasseh had instituted. Here's the thing I want you to know about him, though. He led this revival of let's follow God, but he did it in the context of knowing Judah's doom was sure. He couldn't fix things. Judah was going down. (laughs) But he said, I will follow the Lord my God, come what may. That's what Josiah was on about. And God commended him for it. And of chapter 23, verses, uh, verse 25, and you just hear the contrast. Uh, chapter 23, verse 25, and listen to how big things it says about uh, Josiah and how, how good he was, how he followed God. It says, verse 25, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So the Lord said, I'll remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I'll reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which it said, my name will be there. Josiah would obey God regardless of what happened. Friends, I, I want us to think about this for a sec. What I get out of Josiah, what struck me, it's only one thing you get out of him. Uh, I think the biggest thing that stops us obeying God entirely is that we think that compromise is really okay as long as it achieves a desirable outcome. I think we dare very deeply as a culture believe that. I think, really think we do. Compromise is okay. Righteousness you can just compromise on if the outcome looks like it'll be better. Josiah slaps us in the face for that attitude when we hold it. He lived for the commendation of God like we all should. He just wanted to honour God, regardless of the consequences. And what happens next? His life's in God's hands. Uh, The king of Egypt, if it happens, there he goes, goes past Jerusalem to go and help the crumbling Assyrian Empire. Josiah goes out to meet him. Josiah is killed in battle at Megiddo, Armageddon. But make no mistake about what happened as he ended Judgment Day you know that he heard the words from the Lord Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. 
He wholeheartedly served the Lord his God, wholeheartedly trusted him. King of Egypt continues north, tried to help. The Assyrians moved. Nineveh is conquered by Babylon by this point. Chakashemish is where they're having their last hangout, holdout. King of Egypt tries to help. Babylon at this point is just an unstoppable force, just convincingly does away with them. Assyria is now gone from, you know, competition for empire. Egypt flees. Egypt's disappeared there. That's all right. Egypt flees back towards Jerusalem, and he just deposes the other ruler, so he can put one in that will um, pay tribute to Egypt. But Babylon's coming down, and Babylon doesn't like tribute to Egypt. So we heard about Jehoahaz. He's deposed by the king of Egypt as he went past uh, in order to make way for Jehoiakim, who will follow the uh, Egyptians. Sorry, I just need to find where I'm at at this point. Ah, good. Chapter 24, verses 2. Verse two. Um, and this is just extraordinary. Jehoiakim, loyalty to Egypt. I don't know what he thought was going on in world affairs, but he didn't care about God and God's protection. I think he thought the king of Egypt could help him. Uh, chapter 24, verse 2. The Lord sends Babylonians, Arameans, Moabites, and Ammonite traders against him uh, to destroy Judah in accordance with the word the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. He rebelled against Babylon. And now it would be the end. Jehoiachin is king by the time that Jerusalem is besieged. He's defeated and taken along to Babylon when Jerusalem falls, along with everybody else who has a trade, military experience, skilled work, including a young man called Daniel, if you know that book. Um, the temple's stripped of wealth this time. It's just a husk of itself. And Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah is made king whilst the people go into slavery. It's going very slow today. There's more people, uh, sorry, there, good. Zedekiah is left behind. He's made king of the people left behind. There's more evil people than Zedekiah in the book, but I think he gets the stupid award. Turn to chapter 24, verse 20. He definitely gets the stupid award. Uh, Babylon has just defeated them. Have a look at the end of chapter, uh, chapter 24, verse 20. Most of his country is gone. And it says, now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. It's got to be the worst political move ever. Nebuchadnezzar returns and Judah is destroyed in 586 BC. We read that Nebuchadnezzar obliterates the temple, obliterates the palace, obliterates the city walls. Some people try to resettle there, but the leaders are assassinated. They flee to Egypt, and we are well and truly convinced that there is no Israel, no Judah in that place anymore. Israel and Judah are gone from the face of the earth. And that's pretty much where the end of Two Kings ends, and that's pretty depressing, isn't it? You think that's supposed to be lights of the world. What, what's going on? Has God's promises to David failed? We'll get to that in a sec. Now, what have we seen of kings of Judah and Israel? We've seen two lines go past over the last few weeks, right? We've seen on the north, Israel had 200 years and they had 20 kings. Lots of them killed each other. Judah had 21 kings and almost twice as long. Um, Israel never had a good king. They never followed God. Judah had some, but even the best of them compromised. So the, the, Judah was heaps better, right? But it doesn't account for why they did so much better. Here's the reason they did so much better. His name's David. And it's not because of David and how good a guy he was. It was because God promised to David that he would forever have a ruler for his throne and that one day a descendant of David would bless the whole world. Israel was, Judah was surprised to see Jerusalem wiped off the map because they go, how could this happen now? It's, it's, it's over. God's promises have failed. God's promises have not failed. 
God's promises are just working in the background. Have a look how the book really ends. Have a look at chapter 25, verse 27. You remember we had Jehoiachin here. The second last ruler of Israel was taken off to Babylon. Let's see how he fared. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Israel, in the year Awal-Maduk became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Israel, Judah, from prison. Uh, next verse, he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than the other kings in Babylon before him. So Jehoiachin put aside prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. And you go, what's the deal with that? There's an heir of David around. And the last chapter of 1 and 2 Kings isn't in 1 and 2 Kings. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. How about you turn to the Gospel of Matthew and I'll show you what I mean. It's on page 965 of your Bible, if you've got one there. And you'll hear some familiar names. And the name at the end is the most important one. Page 965. And I'll run it through on the slides as we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Come down to verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, uh, whose mother been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Familiar names? Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, that wicked man who is in the line of the Lord Jesus. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin, the man who went into exile. And then there's a bunch of other names we've never heard in the book of 1 and 2 Kings because they're names in between. We come down to verse 16, and a bunch of time passes. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's God's answer. We started the series talking about a kingdom with a king-shaped hole, and it's about to be Christmas, and we get to celebrate that the hole's filled. <laughs> the king has come, and he offers blessing and salvation to the whole world. And he will never, ever fail like the kings of Israel and Judah did. Never fail. We have a great king. Let's give thanks for him. Loving Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus, who in the midst of a scary world full of empires and gross evil and injustice, offers salvation to all who trust in him. Thank you so much for him. Thank you for being faithful to your promises so that you, uh, you follow through, that you, you gave us the king you promised to David. Thank you that he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And we pray that you'd help us to follow him and love him and trust him and to appreciate all he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.